0: Welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybel Education. I'm Pete Wright, and I am here with Howard Tybel. Hello, Howard. Hello, Pete. Uh, we've got a fascinating and, I think, sensitive topic to talk about today. I'm excited that we're bringing this to this show, and we have our guest here to talk with us about it. Uh, before we get into it, you can learn more about this show, as always, if you head over to tybelink.com, uh, You can learn about our work in education and subscribe to this show for free. Just click the blue button on the homepage, and we'll let you know each time a new episode Is released. Today on the show, we have a guest in a unique position to help us approach a sensitive issue, one present in the halls of leadership across institutions and campuses. Donald Heller is Provost and Vice President of Academic Affairs and a Professor of Education at the University of San Francisco. There, he's responsible for the university's five schools, libraries, academic affairs, student life, enrollment management, online programs, international relations, including community outreach for the university's nearly 11,000 students, 1,200 faculty, and 1,000 staff. Before USF, Dr. Heller served in positions as professor of education at Penn State University and then dean of the College of Education at Michigan State University. And it is with the perspective of his experience at those two institutions that he penned after Michigan State could We Be Next?, an article published as part of the Chronicle of Higher Education series, The Larry Nasser Scandal, and the Fall of Michigan State's President. Dr. Heller, welcome to Navigating Change.
1: Thank you. It's great to be talking with you.
0: Don, thank you for being on this, uh, on this show, because I think
2: that this is such an important topic for all of our listeners, whatever their role is, in and out of education. As you know, Don, and also Pete, the nature of my work doesn't live in this area of of exploring these kinds of really tough, sensitive issues. But at the same time, this is something that's in the background that is present for all of us. I would love to start by giving you a chance to share with our listeners, what was it about this topic that you felt like you needed to write about at this point in time?
1: Well, uh, thanks again for having me on, Howard. Um, I, you know, I think the motivation was a couple of things. First of all, um, I, I felt I was in somewhat of a unique position and having worked at both of these two institutions that have had these very visible Uh, nationally, internationally covered scandals, and been in a position of leadership in in both of the institutions. Um, So that was certainly one motivation that I had that experience. Uh, The second motivation was, as I reflected on it, and and certainly as the scandal really broke at Michigan State in the uh, wintertime, and then I was thinking back on the experience I had had at Penn State, and I really realized that there were some lessons to be learned here from the experience that I had had. And um, I've written for the Chronicle a number of times over the years, and I just felt that this was another opportunity for me to, to share with the readers in the Chronicle, which of course, you know, involves many leaders of higher education around the country, you know, what I thought were some pretty important lessons that I certainly took out of uh, my experience at these two institutions.
2: If you were to just step back at the meta level, 30,000 feet, what would you say is an overarching lesson for all of
1: us to take away from what has shown up in our lives around this, in this area? I think probably the number one lesson is you know, not to assume that you and your institution is immune, no matter you know, who you think you may be, who your leadership is, what kind of controls you think you have in place. Um, you just can't assume that there aren't you know, horrific things going on that you know, today are unbeknownst to you, but a, a week, a month, a year from now may come to light and that you as a leader will have to deal with.
2: Well, you know, what's fascinating about that statement is because I think about everything you have to deal with and other leaders have to deal with in education. And to put ourselves in a situation where we keep ourselves open to the unthinkable, that's something from a human's perspective. We we, we actually don't want to go there. It seems to me that our bias is almost naturally to say that can't happen here right? This idea of confirmation bias, that we believe that, you know, your comment was great in this where you said, you know, we'll do all the trainings. That should be sufficient. We have all the right policies. We'll articulate the values. And now what you're saying, and I think you make clear is maybe that's not enough. So if doing all the right things in those domains are not enough, how do you raise the bar where people can keep front and center the unthinkable?
1: Well, it, it, it is a challenge, and of course, those of us in leadership positions know that we've got plenty of things in our regular day jobs to keep us up at night and things that we right. worry about, and, you know, without uh, thinking about the unthinkable. Um, so, you know, of, of course, none of us are going to sit here on a day-to-day basis and uh, and and uh, worry about whether something as horrible as what Larry Nassar was doing or uh, at Michigan State or Jerry Sandusky at, at Penn State... I, and on a day-to-day basis, we're, we're certainly not going to be sitting here worrying that we're going to get the phone call that something like that has been discovered. But the fact of the matter is, you you do have to be prepared for the unforeseen, and it might not be something as terrible as either of those incidences. Um, but you do have to be ready for the for the uh, unforeseen, and, and and you know, I know from my experience, and I'm sure others. Experiences this as well, that things do happen that you never would have imagined, never would have thought about, um, and all the training that we can give to people. And, you know, my own educational background is I've got a doctorate in higher education. So, you know, I've had many, many courses about things specifically related to management of higher education institutions. But nevertheless you know none of the courses that i had in, in my graduate training would have prepared me for dealing with either of those situations at michigan state or, or penn state uh or frankly other things that i deal with uh, as at of that are certainly at a much lower level but yet you know happen on a not infrequent basis here in my role as a provost of a large private university
2: as i listen to you tell the story too i'm thinking that this question about unthinkable can be broadened beyond this unthinkable that we're talking about in the stories from Michigan State and Penn State. So the capacity to consider that other areas, whether it be around race, whether it be around um, financial sustainability, and I'm not comparing the two in any way in terms of their impact on us as human beings, but if we broaden this, do you see that preparing us for unthinkable in this particular case is also a a way for us to think about other things that could show up for us that we might be in denial around.
1: Well, you certainly, I, I think you have to uh, you have to realize that that's going to happen. That um, you know, while I uh, I can't imagine, you know, at my current institution, I can't imagine anything as, as terrible as those other two examples happening here at my institution. Um, you know, I I know that there have been things that have gone on involving students, sometimes involving faculty, that are things that none of us want to have happen at our institutions. And yet we have to be prepared for those. We have to assume that, that things can happen and have to be ready to deal with those as the leader of the yeah. institution.
2: It's easier to turn our head than to confront. That's <laughs> fundamentally the challenge here is, is, yep. is giving people, helping people to understand and, and, and giving them not just a permission, but encouraging them to have the courage to step into something that
0: could be very scary to even raise. So it's it's easier to just turn away from it. This gets to a, a question that's kind of nagging me, partially because it may be unanswerable, but partially I'm curious in your perspective on this, Don. One of the premises that, that Howard and I started this show on, you know, eight years ago was that leadership, you know, if you want to be a leader, leadership starts in the seat you're in, right? And that, that's- that's the the premise about great leadership, and change starts in the seat you're in, and it's a very empowering kind of statement, and, and it, it, it sort of builds you up. Now, you know, we're in this place where we have to stop and say, you know what else starts in the seat you're in? Turning a blind eye starts in the seat you're in. These horrific acts may start in the seat you're in or in the seat that's right next to you. All of our experience um, is telling us that if, in fact, none of us are immune, how do you effectively prepare at the individual level— when it's something that no one knows how to do? We've never, you know, most of us have never gone through this experience, and yet here you have been at, an institu- at institutions that have gone through it now twice in your career. How do you effectively prepare people who have never been able to rationalize that this could happen to them?
1: You know, Peter, I don't think you you can um, really prepare people adequately for these kinds of things. And, and the reason I say that is that if you think about— um, two of the individuals involved uh, at, at Michigan State and Penn State, and that's the presidents of the two institutions. You know, at Penn State, it was Graham Spanier, Michigan State, Luanna Simon. Um, I, I would argue that um, both of them were among the most well-respected, well-known uh, public university presidents, um, at the time of time of their downfalls. Um, you know, Graham had had, um, a great deal of experience. He was very well connected, very well respected nationally as the leader of Penn state. Um, and the same thing could be said about Luanna Simon at, at Michigan state. And, you know, that one of the lessons I, 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 take from this is, you know, if you think back to, um, Watergate and I was, a uh, um, uh, uh, call myself a tween at the time of uh, Watergate. And, you know, what was it that got Richard Nixon in, in trouble? It wasn't the break in at the Watergate office building itself, it was the cover up. Mm-hmm. And I think if you think back on, on what's happened at Michigan State and Penn State, you know, it, it wasn't direct actions that. Um, both Graham Spanier took and and Luanna Simon took that got them in trouble and ultimately led to their downfall, it was their inability to see the the nature of the actions that were going on in their campuses and respond appropriately to those actions. Um, So I I, I think, you know, to go back to your question about how do you prepare people, I don't think you really can prepare anybody adequately to respond to something like this. But what you can say to people is, you know, never, when, when something that is a, a potential uh, threat to your institution, you know, never try to downplay it and assume it's just going to blow over and the reputation of the university and the rep and, and your reputation as a leader will be enough to just tamp it down and make it go away um, I, I think that the reality is no matter how well respected the leader is no matter how res- well respected the institution is when something like this happens you have to react appropriately and recognize the threat to the institution certainly the threat to individuals whoever those stakeholders are and can constituents of the institution are, and the threat to your own position as a leader. And don't underestimate how threatening this can be.
2: So as i was listening to you talk, I'm thinking about your choice to pen this commentary. Was there a place where either without, you know, I was going to say without giving names, but w- even for yourself to say, you know, do I really want to do this? Do I want, is, the, is this, am I exposing myself too much or was there no question for you I needed to write this?
1: I really didn't have any question about it. I'm an academic at heart, and the way, you know, that we academics express ourselves is through our writing, uh, as well as giving, you know, oral presentations. So I I never really questioned whether I should write about this. And again, because I I had somewhat of a unique perspective, you know, first of all, very personally, it was somewhat Cathartic to be able to write about this and share uh, the story with people beyond my relatively close circle of friends and colleagues who knew the right. you know, the experiences I had had. So certainly, from a personal standpoint, it was cathartic. I, but again, I you know, as I said earlier, I, I believe that I, I had information and some lessons that I think would be helpful to other leaders, and and felt that because of that, I could share it through uh, through the chronicle.
2: One of my big takeaways, as I read this a couple of times, was your willingness to put yourself in the center of being a human being like the rest of us, that you are not immune, that in all of these stories, it's not like you went into this saying that I'm above this and I know, you know, it's not that you saw it coming, but that you knew that others need to take this seriously, whereas where I think what you did was you humanized the conversation to say, listen, I have this role at this institution, these prior ones, and I haven't seen these coming, so I am not going to approach my work around this thinking that something unimaginable could be happening here, and I think the rest of us should be in that dialogue. So let me ask you this, how have these lessons, or even after you've written this, how has this shaped some of your current thinking and even how you're operating at
1: USF? Well, that's a good question, and I, and I think that one of the things that I, I've learned from these experiences is when when something you know crops up on, on our campus, um, one of the first things I immediately think about is, um, is this the tip of the iceberg? You know, All where right. I think in the past something could have happened, I would have thought, okay, it's an incident, you know, we know what happened, uh, we know how we're going to deal with it, case closed, or, you know, soon the case will be closed. But I, I think, you know, now, anytime something like this happens, um you you can't help but go to that point of saying, gee, is there a lot more here than meets the eye and we just don't know about yet? And uh, what's it going to take to unravel um, what's really going on here and how long will that take and who will be involved? I think that's one of the things I took out of my experience is just this, this notion that when something does happen, immediately going to the point of saying, hmm, is there a lot more here than meets the eye? Whereas in the past, I wouldn't necessarily have done that. Got it.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you. Have you noticed any sort of change in the fabric of the institution in, you know, the temper and tenor of the classroom? Uh,
1: well, you know, I, I, I would say certainly here at the University of San Francisco, I, I haven't noticed any change. Um, and, you know, in both the, the case of Michigan State and Penn State, um, you know, at, at Penn State, um, I, I left there uh, six weeks after the Sandusky scandal broke in the case of Michigan State. I left there, you know, uh, roughly a year and a half or a couple of years before the NASA scandal broke. So I didn't have that direct experience of seeing how the institution changed, what went on in the classroom, what went on among meetings of administrators. Um, What You know, what I do have is a lot of a lot of friends and colleagues who are still at both institutions. And I've had many conversations with them about how this has affected their lives and the lives of their students and the lives of their faculty members at the institutions. And And I can tell you from those conversations that it has had a, a profound effect on the institutions and the way they both faculty and staff and students think about these kinds of issues. They, it gets talked about in the classroom. It gets talked about in meetings. Um, and it, it's Probably not fair to say that it becomes all-consuming, but I think, um, you know, particularly at Michigan State right now, given the timing, this is weighing so heavily on everybody there that um, it's just affected almost every aspect of institutional life.
2: You know, Dan, I'm thinking about having done so so much work over the years uh, with institutions where there's a hierarchy and people are often – paying attention to how do I, you know, if I if I have an issue, I'm gonna raise it a level up. You know, so in this case, if we think about if you're a coach, you're gonna raise it to your athletic director. If you're a faculty member, you're gonna raise it to your dean. And in the in the course of the work of that's happening on the academic and administrative side, to bring it to the level of the provost, I would I would imagine there's an inherent dilemma being at the level where you are and saying we need to open our eyes and and actually make it possible for people to feel comfortable to go up the chain beyond their direct report because that's where i often think that things stop it's like i raised it with my manager they did nothing and therefore I did what I could. So so how do you in your role, or as you're thinking about this, you know, as we look forward in the world, how do you encourage people to say, I'm going to go beyond my direct report and I'm going to be, I'm going to be willing to raise this at a higher level?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it, that's a good question, Howard. And, and you know, the, the first thing I would say is, you know, what everybody, particularly in positions of leadership in universities need to understand is in their state, what are the mandatory reporter laws? And, you know, to give you an example, you know, I, I've been here at USF for two years now, and I'm the first time I've lived in California. And, you know, this past winter, when the NASA scandal broke, I got hold of our HR people and our general counsel. And I said, hey, will you please explain to me what the mandatory reporter laws are in California? Because I had never had that conversation with them. And the first thing I wanted to make sure I understood is who on our campus are mandatory reporters and, and you know mandatory reporter laws in most states um, require people who get who are, who are considered to be mandatory reporters require them to notify law enforcement it's not necessarily sufficient depending upon, and it's different in every state, but in many cases, it's not sufficient to simply um, say, oh, I've told my supervisor. You know, depending upon your status, depending upon the state, you may be required, and depending upon the what what occurred, you know, you may be required to make a direct report to law enforcement or child protective services or whomever. And, and people need to know that. And we as employers need to make sure that we're notifying any of our employees who do fall under mandatory reporter laws that they are covered and what their responsibilities are. Because if you don't do that as an employer, you you, you can't expect people to be able to um, do the right thing at the right time. So, you know, that's an example where you know, first and foremost, let's make sure everybody understands what their obligations are under the law. You know, to get back to your question about, you know, what is sufficient internally in terms of reporting within the organization, I would hope that in, in my organization, we would engender a culture that people, when they, um, you know, discovered something untoward that was happening, that they would have an obligation and they and they would recognize that obligation ethically and morally to do more than say well i inform my supervisor so that's all i had to do uh, what i would like them to 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 have a culture of is you know, yes, I inform my supervisor, but I want to make sure that the right thing gets done. And beyond just my supervisor, the right individual or individuals gets notified. And, you know, so that would mean an employee might, you know, follow up and ask a question and say, hey, you know, Tom, I, I told you about this. Uh, I know you can't necessarily share all the details, but I just want to know, is, is somebody dealing with this? Yeah. So I think that's the kind of culture I would hope we would have in our institution that that people would really care about this, care about the potential victims, and and care enough to ask questions until somebody yeah. said, okay, stop, that's not your role. It's being, you know, we're taking right. care of it. Um, and that it's not simply, I told my supervisor my job is done.
2: Yeah, and I think what you're also pointing to is by getting on the phone and having those conversations, you're, you're raising that. Part of this exercise for all of us is, is educating ourselves and knowing when we don't know something and should we be stepping in. And even in areas where we don't know what we don't know, that we take this as an opportunity. I would imagine for the institution at the leadership level to be encouraging throughout the whole organization for people to find ways to raise their level of sensitivity and understanding of the law but also what's expected of them and and to be able to have conversation about this. I think the biggest seed that produces this going underground is people don't find themselves open to talking about it. Once we start talking about it, then we have the capacity to move ourselves into education.
1: That's, That's very true, very true.
2: I'm curious about what kind of receptivity, what kind of impact, have you seen either through people reaching out to you since you wrote this have you have you noticed that that it has had some kind of impact where some actions have been taken in and outside the university as a result of what you wrote?
1: I think that when you know when these kinds of things happen I, I think it raises the awareness of. A lot of people in the community of the need for for vigilance, uh, as I talked about before, you know the the need when something happens to ask more questions than perhaps we would have a year ago or five years ago um, about okay, is this just you know an isolated um situation, or is this you know perhaps as I called it before, the tip of the iceberg so I, I think that's one thing I've seen is that people are just you know, more aware of, you know, a, a single incident may in fact not be a single incident, and it may be a, a pattern of behavior on the part of an individual or a group or whatever. So I think people are much more willing to ask that question than, than we were before the Sandusky and the Nassar scandals. Um, you know, we, we've had a lot of conversations on our campus um, in, in the last few months about um, minors. And, and when we have minors on campus, whether it's summer camps um, or, you know, even students who are under the age of 18, you know, we occasionally get freshmen who are under the age of 18 on our campus. So we've certainly had conversations about um, minors on campus and um, and protecting them as well. So that, that's that been, I think, something that's been a direct fallout uh, more, most recently of the Nassar scandal. So I, I And I'm sure those kinds of conversations are happening on many, many other campuses across the nation as well. We're not unique that way.
2: Well, you know, I'll tell you that one thing that I'm taking away from this personally is by having even a conversation with you, not just reading your piece, it raises my level of awareness because I haven't been at uh, in a position where I've experienced this or know someone personally has, who has experienced what this has been through. And and as a result of that, there's a place where I, I don't bring sort of a level of connection. But the conversation with you raises my level of awareness that I need to be vigilant and I need to be conscious even though it's very easy for those of us who have never experienced something like this, not to dismiss it, but to say this couldn't happen here. It couldn't happen in my world. So just talking with you, uh, has made my level of awareness raise. So I, so I think that that's something that you have that you can give to others that can go such a long way um, for that for them to feel more empowered to do something in their world. In the event something unthinkable shows up, so so I personally want to thank you for for, for raising that for me and for those of us who also have not lived this kind of nightmare.
1: Well, you're you're welcome, and and you know I can tell you, Howard, that my greatest hope is that we never have to read about one of these situations again in, in the future. Um, you know, it's just it's just a horrific experience for the victims of of these two individuals, and 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 to be broader and fair about it, it's not just they're not just victims of the individuals. I think they're they're also victims of institutional failure and on the part of both institutions, because from the information that has come out in both cases, I think it's pretty clear that if uh, people in positions of responsibility had stepped forward and, and handled these differently, then there would have been fewer victims um, after some of the initial warning signs. Yeah. So I, it, it's both individual failure, and I think it's fair to characterize it as, as institutional failure. And, and I just hope that we never have to see this again, that Absolutely. Leaders, leaders of institutions will have learned from these two experiences of things that they can do better to, to prevent them in the future
0: well i i absolutely and and i think you know if any lesson comes out of this for me personally i i think it's sort of summed up with your conversation with president simon in your article when you say uh you know it, it how i i can't imagine anything like this happening here and her response is why not for for me that's representative of um you know this initiative to to stand up as a leader and say i don't know i don't know how to do this but i know I have to learn. I, I don't know what to do next, but I know I have to do something. And and to take ownership of uh, uh, the level of uncertainty uh, and do so in a transparent way, uh, as you say, it's the cover-up that'll, that'll kill us. And in this case, we clearly have a lot to learn, but we can learn uh don heller provost university of san francisco thank you so much for your time and attention today
1: oh you're welcome and thanks for having me on the podcast i'm i'm humbled by this conversation and i'm
2: just really thankful that we're bringing something that is probably that probably is more important than most of anything we talk about pete yeah Um, this is something that i'm i'm grateful that don brought this to us on the show
0: uh, absolutely. And, and Howard, I mean, I, I think to your point exactly uh, for you and me, I don't know how to do this and I know we have to learn. This is new territory, and we, we can do That's it. Right. Uh, we will put links uh, in the show notes, uh, both links to uh, uh, Don's uh, work at University of San Francisco. to we'll learn a little bit more about Don, but most importantly, uh, to the Chronicle article after Michigan State, Could We Be Next? We encourage everybody to go take a look at that. Uh, it, it is a fantastic piece. Uh, on behalf of Don Heller and Howard Tybel, I'm Pete Wright, and we will catch you next time right here on Navigating Change. The podcast from Tybal Education.